Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is Carol Boudreau, a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center here at George Mason University and the lead researcher for Enterprise Africa, a Mercatus Center research project that studies poverty in Africa. Carol, welcome back to Econ Talk. Thank you, Russ. Thanks for having me. Our topic today is wildlife management and how it interacts with poverty and property rights. How did you become interested in this topic? This was a topic that was introduced um, to me by our partners in South Africa, the Free Market Foundation. They had a contact with a gentleman who had been very instrumental in funding uh, community-based natural resource management efforts in the 1980s, and they suggested that we be in touch with him and take a look at what was going on in Namibia because it seemed um, to him as a result of his experiences that Namibia actually presented a very positive story of communities taking charge of their wildlife resources and doing good things as a result of that. So what is that exactly? Community, it's sometimes called community-based resource management. I think you just called it community-based natural resource management. Mm -hmm. What, it sounds pleasant, Uh what is it in in practice and and what are some of the alternative ways that countries uh, have to choose from for for, uh, managing uh, wildlife or natural resources? Um, I'll I'll typically refer to CBNRM, Community-Based Natural Resource Management, and that's an approach to dealing with resources um, that shifts the focus of control or the locus of control, rather, from the national or the state or the provincial level down to the local or the community level. In the case of Namibia, the government has actually devolved the rights to manage wildlife and some other natural resources, such as forestry products, Um, to local peoples. But CBNRM can take a variety of different forms. Um, For example, there's a very famous case of CBNRM in Zimbabwe that was called the Campfire Program. And lots of people were very excited about Campfire in the 1980s and 1990s and saw it as a very nice movement away from command and control approaches, centralized approaches to dealing with valuable resources because it gave some authority at a more local level to people to manage these resources. But there's a real difference between the Campfire program in Zimbabwe and the program that the Namibian government has created because in Zimbabwe, the locus of control was at a district council level, not at a village level, not at a local community level. And that district council had a political element to it, whereas in Namibia, the organization that controls the wildlife is a non-political local governance structure. Well, let's back up a little bit and let's talk about the problem more generally. Uh, usually, when I teach these topics to my students, I usually make a contrast between chickens and whales. Uh, chickens, there's plenty of them. They're not about to go extinct. There's about, I think, a billion in, roughly in the United States that are living right now. And no one worries that chickens are going to become endangered or go out of existence, but they worry about whales. And the strangest thing about chickens is we encourage people to eat them, more or less. Many people do, and many people do eat them. And you'd think that encouraging people to eat them would mean they could have a chance of going extinct, but they don't. And the fundamental reason is, and this, by the way, is insight, as far as I know, goes back to at least Henry George. And we have his 
uh, essay on this. It's out of one of his books on uh, when he talks about man is the only animal that when you get more of them, you can get more of something that he hunts. Whereas with chicken hawks, the more chicken hawks you have, the fewer chickens. But with man, the more people there are, the more chickens. And that's paradox, paradox due to property. The fact that you can own chickens, profit from raising them, profit from selling them. But you can't, it's harder to profit from whales because they're hard to fence in. They're not like chickens, they're harder to raise. And my understanding of the campfire program is that the campfire program was an attempt to make elephants a little bit more like chickens and a little bit less like whales to give people an incentive to enhance the population, as you point out, at the district level. And let's let our list, tell our listeners how, how that works. Let's start with the campfire program or the, just the general idea of this community-based resource management because it's not really private property like chickens, but it's not a communal resource the way we think of it as whales where there's a, a huge problem with the tragedy of the commons that if you spare an animal out of the herd or out of the, the, the whale population, you can't count on someone else not killing it and taking it, so you have an incentive to take it. So tell us what, um, what was the idea behind these programs when they first started. So um, you're exactly right. This is the CBNRM program is an attempt to create um, a, a relatively thick but not a completely full bundle of property rights over particular kinds of resources. And so changing the legal environment in order to give local people or people at a district level more control over resources that they live with on a day-to-day basis was seen as being important because it would shift incentives that people had vis-a-vis those resources. So in, in before, say, the, the early 1990s, or, or in Namibia's case, before the 1980s, um, wildlife has typically been seen as not a, not a not a communal resource, but rather as an open access resource. So a resource that's, um, in legal terms, rest nullius. No one owns It's a thing that nobody owns, so very much like the whales. Um, because nobody owns it, nobody has the incentives to conserve it. In fact, um, people may have incentives to go out and poach the animals, to use them for meat, because they really can't reduce them to um, ownership unless they actually capture those animals. And there's a physical problem here, which is that they, like the whales, they roam over large territories, right? Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. Across so the animals are moving. property lines that normally would protect Exactly. Them. Unless they're fenced in, and in some cases, in many cases in southern Africa now, there's a lot of conservation efforts that take place when people farm uh, fence in very large farms and keep the animals inside but you know naturally they want to move around they want to roam they want to go to different places and they do that in Namibia they'll roam from one conservancy to a different at different times of year depending upon the rain but the CBNRM movement really builds on a couple of things it builds on that economic insight that incentives matter Um, That when you give people secure rights to property, whether it's in freehold form or whether it's in this somewhat lesser form that CBNRM provides. What do you mean by freehold? Uh, So freehold property is um, the kind of rights that individuals hold to fee simple property in the Anglo-Saxon legal tradition. And we get a pretty thick bundle of rights when we have freehold property, including the right Uh, the important rights to exclude people, to use resources, to benefit from the use of those resources, but also to sell and bequeath property, which is typically not one of the sticks in the bundle that people hold 
when they have communal property. So communal property is another form of private property ownership. It's a community owning, whether it's a condominium group, whether it's um, a communal tribal organ, tribal group in Africa or somewhere else. It's still a it's still a private sector way of dealing with property. But communal property tends to have a few tends to have fewer sticks in its bundle than does freehold property, which is what we're used to. Freehold property would be like your car, your house. Would be like your house here, typically, as opposed to leasehold property, as, oppo- as opposed to other forms of property ownership. A freehold ownership is a very vigorous form of ownership, giving you lots and lots of rights over the thing. In CBNRM programs, what's happened is that governments have given up some rights to control resources to different groups, whether it's at this district level in Zimbabwe or whether it's at the local level in Namibia. And that's really a curious thing, right? Why would governments give up the right to manage a particular resource? And we can talk about that as we go on. Yeah, well, let's talk about that now. The the simple answer, of course, is it didn't work very well. So when the government was managing, say, the elephant population in Zimbabwe or or the uh, rhino or elephant population in um, Namibia, what was going wrong? Oh, so the animals were being poached routinely. Um, by, the, by early 1980 in Namibia, um, people, people will say that there was virtually no wildlife left in the northeast corner of the country for a couple of reasons. Um, there was this centralized approach to dealing with the wildlife. It's probably important to tell the listeners that Namibia is the second newest country in in, Af- in sub-Saharan Africa. It only got its independence in 1990. It had been controlled by South Africa until then, and the country had fought a civil war um, through the 1980s, actually for, for a very long period of time. And as a result of that war, um, as a result of South African police forces poaching, as a result of local people poaching to eat the animals, um, the animal populations had been decimated in the country. It was not a successful approach to dealing with conservation. Why didn't the government crack down on poaching? Um, some of the poachers were local government officials. Well, they that, were, yeah. yeah, they, yeah. <laughs> it's an important thing to note, uh, actually. Um, it's always well and good to talk about stopping people from doing something, but you have to have somebody monitoring the people who are doing the stopping and the monitoring, and it's a challenge sometimes. Yeah, and the northwest corner of Namibia is really far away from Pretoria. So if the folks who were controlling wildlife were ultimately in Pretoria and the people who were doing the poaching were thousands of kilometers away in the northwest corner of Namibia where there aren't very many roads, it's hard to get there, no one – there's not many people there today. There were fewer people there then. It's not surprising oversight was light. So there was legislation protecting the wildlife. It just wasn't effectively enforced. Right. And so what happened then? Well, in so in Namibia, the story is is a really interesting, I think, institutional story. In 1980, a South African gentleman who had been involved in the forestry service um, was sent up to Namibia by the South African government to help out up in that area. His name is Garth Owen Smith, and he really is the father of community-based natural resource management in Namibia. Um, Mr. Smith went to the Cunani region, which is in northwest Namibia in 1980, started working with local communities and realized the wildlife was just missing. And this was this was a terrible loss um, for local communities because there are many different connections that local communities can have to wildlife. You can have a kind of utilitarian connection. You use the wildlife for food or they provide you with some other benefit. Um, maybe it's manure or something else. Uh, But you can also have a kind of cultural or spiritual connection to wildlife, and that's especially important in African societies. And so local communities were losing both types of connections, the utilitarian connection and the cultural connection. 
Um, and he asked local people what could be done to, to change things, to turn the tide. And local traditional leaders said to him, well, there's nothing that we can do because we don't control this wildlife. It's the people in Wintook, it's the people in Pretoria who control it. So, so we're powerless. What is it that we can do? And he actually said, no, I think there's something that can be done. And what he did was set up a community game guard system, which paid local Namibians to identify poachers and bring them to justice in the court system um, and really encouraged local traditional authorities to talk to community members to treat wildlife differently. This was way before there were any benefits going to local community members. So by force of suasion, really, um, by his argumentation and by the willingness of traditional authorities to take to do something differently, there was a real change in social norms in Namibia. First, it started informally. The formal legal legalized changes came much later. So it's somewhat analogous to a situation where the police aren't doing their job in a particular neighborhood, and the people in the neighborhood say, "Well, let's have a block patrol that." that privately and voluntarily keeps an eye on things. Yeah, that's a really nice analogy. So it was community efforts um, driven in part by Mr. Owen Smith, but also importantly, there was buy-in from the local community. They wanted to see things change, and so they took action themselves. And it was outside donors from South Africa who funded this project. So that's bringing us back to the how-did-you-get-involved connection paying people to be those guards, presumably, to have yeah. go beyond just the voluntary aspect Private of it. donors in South Africa were willing to put up the money to pay the guards to do this service because you had to get people to stop poaching. Poaching provides a service, provided a benefit to local people. They'd poach, they'd eat the meat, they might sell the skins. Um, now you were asking them not to poach any longer. And so what were they going to get in return for not poaching? There was a real cost to not poaching. And so some game guard jobs or, or was a benefit. And people weren't necessarily getting big wages. They might be getting food. They might be getting uniforms at first. But there was, there was some benefit that was flowing from that. But then it went beyond that. Then it went much beyond that. But it, it could really, it, it went beyond that for two reasons, I, for three reasons, rather. Um, the first reason is that the Namibian, the South African-controlled Namibian government had given white farmers legal rights to manage wildlife, starting in the late 1960s and then um, protected by legislative means in the 1970s. And so the Namibians had seen, the white farmers had seen, that it was really beneficial economically for them to protect wildlife because hunters would come onto these farms that the white farmers owned. Um, they would engage in trophy hunting. The white farmers would make bunches of money. Uh, they might just come for photo safaris. But there was money to be made by shifting out of cattle ranching and into wildlife game creation, game park creation. And these farmers were selling access to this these experiences, yeah, either exactly. as hunting or safaris or whatever. Yeah, exactly. In fact, I ha Don, and, Don and I have a neighbor who would routinely go to Namibia, we found out later, and, and uh, go for trophy hunting experiences. But he'd always go to private game reserves. He never went to the community conservancies. Just out of curiosity, did some of the white farmers pool their farms together to create larger areas? Do you know? Um, I'm, not, I'm not aware of that, although it's possible. The farms in Namibia tend to be really large because it's a very dry country, so people might have 30,000 hectare. And in order to become a private game reserve, white farmers would have to agree to fence the property. So they'd fence in the wildlife, mm. um, which would keep the wildlife from doing damage to neighbors who wouldn't necessarily want it. Mm -hmm. But as long as they met that requirement of fencing, they could keep the wildlife inside on their property, control it, manage it. And profit it, and, from it. And profit from it, importantly, right? They could exclude people who... 
they, they had the rights of freeholder freeholder ownership. They could exclude, but they could also benefit from the use of the property. So that the key here, I think, is with any type of property, it gave them the incentives to be stewards of that property because it's a valuable asset. Make sure that the population didn't shrink. Don't don't let hunters kill too many of the of the creatures to make sure that that the population would stay healthy and thrive, et cetera, et cetera. Sure, exactly right. So in Namibia, you had this historical experience of having private game reserves that was only on white land, and only white farmers benefiting from this economic change, this new this change to the legal environment. Um, and when independence came in 1990, the new government could say, why is it only the white people who have these benefits? Why shouldn't our black citizens, who are, ex- who are very poor, the people, rural people living in the countryside in Namibia still are, are very poor people, why shouldn't they have the same sorts of rights as the white farmers have? You also had the experience from uh, Garth Owen Smith and his subsequent partner, Margaret Jacobson, of running this community game guard system, which seemed to be working in commu- on the communal land in Namibia. Um, and you had the experience of people having read Eleanor Ostrom's work. And curiously, when I was back in May, um, I talked to several people, a key person uh, who was Brian Jones, very important figure in CBNRM in Namibia, who said, look, I had read Eleanor Ostrom's work. I thought it made plenty of sense. How should we deal with common common resources, common pool resources? Well, one way we deal with them is creating some effective rules and property rights over the resources. So a couple of different um, things happening in Namibia at the same time that led to this really important change that, that I think is nothing short of a paradigm of how to manage resources. So what happened? So what happened is the government changed in 1990. A new uh, minister came into the Ministry of Environment and Tourism named Nico Bessinger. Um, I didn't have the chance to meet Mr. Bessinger. He died earlier this year. But from all reports of uh, people I've spoken with in Namibia, he really completely bought into the idea that local peoples should have these rights to manage resources. He believed that they could effectively manage the resources and steward their steward these resources effectively. Um, in the early part of the 1990s, the Ministry of Environment and Tourism did some studies looking into how feasible was this. By 1996, the government passed um, an amendment to a previous piece of legislation that actually gave local people in Namibia the right to create something called a conservation conservancy if they met four criteria. Shall I tell you what the four criteria Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> so um, you had to identify a membership. There, people had to identify who in their community wanted to be a member of the conservancy. The conservancy had to define its boundary. It's probably important to say that most land in Namibia is, uh, the title to it is held by the government. So most people in rural areas are living on communal property, but titles held by the government. So they had to identify a boundary, then they had to create a constitution themselves, and the constitution had to include provisions for dealing with wildlife and for distributing any benefits that might flow from using wildlife in the future. Um, And then finally, they had to create a representative uh, management committee, so a committee that would really be able to reflect the desires of all community members. Uh, That sounds like a difficult task for... um highly educated people to execute. I assume these are not particularly highly educated people. How did they pull this off and how successful? I mean, it sounds like a wild idea. You say, okay, we're going to create these things called conservancies. They've got these requirements of membership, borders, a constitution, 
and a set of rules for dealing with money and other things, right? Those are the four things. Yeah, those are the four things. And somehow you're going to get rural people spread out its subsistence level to devote time away from farming and feeding themselves to creating this wildlife conservancy. It sounds like a nice fantasy for uh, uh, suburban America. How, how did it work there? You know, I think it actually worked better in Namibia than it would ever work in suburban yeah, probably America. True. Uh, people are not um, they're not highly educated. Some people go to secondary school. Some people only are in primary school. So you're talking about people who are not PhD political scientists but who have managed over the past 12 years to create 50 of these conservancies. It's really an amazing phenomenon, but it is a really tough, it's a really tough process. Um, in, in one case I can think of, in the northwest corner of the country, it took three conservancies over 10 years to finally figure out what would the borders be, what are the appropriate borders. So there is, there can be a lot of haggling about what the borders are. There can be, especially in the early stages, there was difficulty in trying to create a constitution, trying to create management plans. Um, in the early days, there was some cur- some concern that some of the committees were really dominated by a particular by a small set of local local figures. Um, and this is where NGOs played a very important role. Define. Uh, non-governmental organizations such as um, in Namibia, IRDNC, which is Integrated Rural Development and Nature uh, Conservation. It's a long, it's an act, the acronym's a lot easier. So <laughs> IRDNC is Garth Owen Smith's organization on the ground. They've provided a lot of, he and Margaret Jacobson have provided a lot of support to local peoples who wanted to create conservancies to help them understand here's how you form, a, here's how you create a constitution, here's what your management committee should be doing, here's how you can think about creating a management um, plan. Also important, there, there are a whole number of NGOs who are very important in Namibia. The Namibia Nature Foundation, also important. USAID has played an important role, I should say, also in this effort by funding the World Wildlife Foundation, which has provided a lot of institution capacity building support in Namibia at fairly low cost. So um, I think one of the reasons it's hard to imagine this succeeding is that creating a wildlife conservancy Sounds like a um, a luxury hobby for uh, wealthy folks with time on their hands. But, of course, for these people, a successful conservancy meant a lot more than just good feelings about nature. It, it, it turned out to be quite, quite important to them. So how did that work? So the benefits that are flowing from this effort, you're right, it's a tough thing to get this set up. It's tough to keep it working. Um, conservancies have to have annual general meetings where they've got to report back to members what's going on, what are we doing with the money that you've given us, how are we shepherding our resources. But local people in Namibia believe that it's worthwhile because, in fact, there are increasing benefits coming from conservancies. In the er, the first years of conservancy, the conservancy legislation, there was um, about 600000 Namibian dollars generated uh, from the conservancy effort. So if you were to look back to, say, 1997, about 600000 Namibian dollars, which is less than 100000 U.S. dollars. Um, would which is it, not a trivial amount of money. Which is not trivial for people who are subsistence goat herders. I mean, people were willing to go to this trouble and this effort because they hoped to increase their standard of living. So in the early days, where was that money 
coming from? Where, what was that revenue being generated by? It was being generated by primarily activities like campsites, people going into these communal areas, paying a small fee to camp overnight. There were very few tourist lodges at that point, but there are more now. And that's the largest source of income. And then over time, another important source of income has been fees paid um, in order to do trophy hunting. But there were also benefits because local people who create these conservancies can identify certain species of wildlife that they can use for themselves. In other words, they can hunt the animals, they can consume the meat, they can distribute meat to community members who may be in need of some meat during the course of the year. But those benefits, which started at a level of you know, really started at zero before the conservancies existed, then went up to 600000 Namibian dollars in the late, in 1997, are up this year to almost $40 million Namibian dollars. Wow. That's an amazing increase. Now, some of the conservancies are generating more income than other conservancies are, but it, at least in the northwest corner of the country, standards of living have increased um, people or I should say the per capita, I guess per capita income is in, is up more than 30% as a result of these activities. That's a big difference for people who are really poor. And who experience presumably very little progress in the previous decade. Uh, and that's corrected for inflation, I assume? It is corrected for inflation. Okay, so I just want to back up for a minute and let, let's talk for a minute about the incentives. I think for many listeners and for many environmentalists, the idea of encouraging wildlife preservation by giving people the legal right to hunt seems like but worse than a paradox. It seems like a, a, a contradiction and a lie. So what's going on in those areas where hunting's being allowed, I assume, is that the amount of hunting is, instead of being uncontrolled, is now controlled, where now there's a concern that you want to make sure you don't, since, some, since the community owns the resource, you don't want to uh, overhunt, which is the problem with poaching, because each poacher's incentive is to kill whatever whatever you can. Now there's an incentive to reduce the amount of hunting to a level that would sustain the population or ideally let it grow, which again seems paradoxical, but certainly is possible. How does a community do that? If I'm a if I'm a uh, the owner of a of a resource and it's personally mine, uh, it could be it doesn't have to be uh, wildlife. Let's say it's uh, timber. Well, obviously, I don't just cut down all my trees at once. I'm going to make sure that I have a sustainable yield from my trees, and I'm not going to kill off all the seeds. I want to make sure I can keep this resource healthy and thriving, et cetera. I'm not going to destroy my soil, et cetera. So we all understand how private property sustains good practice stewardship, et cetera. When I get to this community level, I understand why it might be better than the national level, the federal level, the state level. But it's still hard to understand what's going on on the – and maybe you don't know the answer, but as an outsider, when I look at this, I'm always curious, what's going on on, on the ground that that is monitoring this, that is creating the incentives that allows the community to thrive? And who's distributing that money that gener- is generated from that? Who has the rights to hunt? If I'm the owner, I decide. I do the hunting for my own benefit or I sell the rights to hunt, again, keeping an eye on the population of the – of the of the wildlife, but if it's the community as a whole, what makes sure that that it works well? Um, it's a kind of a complicated question, so I'll try to get to each piece of the question. Um, within the in the Namibian case, the conservancies must create wildlife management plans, and the wildlife management plans are created by consulting with NGOs and by consulting with community members. 
and also by um, recognizing that there are, are limited amounts of anim- of some kinds of animals that may in fact be hunted. The Namibian government has very little involvement at this point in the conservancies, but one area where they do still have involvement is the Ministry of Environment and Tourism still sets the quotas for hunting particular kinds of animals. So some animals, um, the government will only let the conservancy um, issue permits to hunt. So, for example, in the case of... um, uh, leopards. Le- uh, Conservancy may have a zero quota for leopards in a given year. It may have a one quota for l- hunting leopards in a given year, but that quota is not locally determined. It's determined in the capital by the ministry. Um, but for other for other animals, for the the antelope type animals, the local conservancy will say, well, you know, this year we're going to use these antelopes. We're going to use the kudu or the oryx in order to um, for two reasons. We're going to have them there for the tourists to see, but we're also going to use them for food, and that's called own use. And so the community itself will decide what's the own use level for these kinds of animals. What do we think we need? And they'll actually go out themselves and do the hunting. But it raises a couple, um, that raises a couple of issues, and perhaps the most important issue is, and we should get back to this, because communities are are created on government-titled land, conservancies do not have the right to exclude. They may not keep people out when people come onto the land. So they can deal with poaching on their own land by trying to identify through using local networks who might have been poaching? And then you go off and you try, the the conservancy um, committees try to find a poacher, bring that person to justice. But if somebody who's visiting from outside the country comes in, or if a group from another part of Namibia decides they want to come into the conservancy land and disrupt the animals, this is a stick in the bundle of property rights that conservancies do not have, and it's a troubling absence. Well, so I don't understand that. So if I'm... Um Let's say I'm a tourist, mm-hmm. uh, um, and I'm walking across Namibia. I can go look at wildlife, and they nobody, across conservancies, nobody can stop me from enjoying that. Pretty much, that's right. So is it then the case that the way they've been able to profit from that, since they can't exclude me and charge me an entry fee, is through these lodges that have been created as Absolutely. a result? Absolutely. So let's, let's hear about that. What are, the lo- what are the lodges, how they get created, who runs them? It's also uh-huh. mysterious. I don't um, I'm just going to try to finish up your oh, last question for sure. a second because I know it looks mysterious that this this actually works on the ground, but it actually works reasonably well on the ground. And one of the reasons it works reasonably well is because the community members themselves do have voice and are able to express displeasure when they think the community members are not doing what they should be doing. So in a kind of consultative process, these management plans are established Um, And the local community themselves, they're the ones who are watching whether the game is being poached or not. And I just wanted to go back to this because this is interesting. There is virtually no poaching on conservancy land in Namibia, but there is poaching on non-conservancy land still today. So the conservancies have done an extremely good job of protecting the animals by using low-tech methods like sending people out in a jeep and looking around to see what's going on, but also developing strong community relations so that if if somebody knows that another person in the community has poached, there's, an, there's a strong social norm against that kind of behavior. Well, maybe it would help to understand it better by 
knowing how many people are involved in these situations. What's what's the size of a community in these conservancy? They really vary depending upon the kind of environment. So there are today t- approximately 220,000 people living on conservancies. There are only about 2 million people in the country of Namibia. So approximately 10% of the population of the country is now living on conservancy land and part of a conservancy governance structure. So what stops, going back to our early discussion of, of s- suburban America, w- one of the things that would happen in suburban America is that the politically powerful and economically powerful people would presumably want to have a lot of say relative to the others. How, quote, democratic is this process? You know, you suggest that these social norms have been created, which usually requires a widespread acceptance of the outcomes that these plans have created – What's keeping the average person involved, and why isn't it being hijacked by powerful folks, either politically powerful or economically powerful? I think it's not being hijacked so far by politically powerful folks because back when the um, legislation was first being discussed, back when the initial steps were taken to move in this direction, um, the ministry was controlled by the South Africans. And so the people, this is one of the things I was curious about when I went back in May. I wanted to understand why the heck would this ever happen? Why would the government ever give up control? But Namibia is a kind of unusual situation because the control was given up really as a res- in the aftermath of an independence. And so the folks who were in the ministry who might have um, wanted to... Uh, keep control of the resources, we're facing a situation after independence where the new government might throw them out of their jobs if they raise too much of a fuss. Um, so it was explained to me in May that people were kind of, uh, had adopted a wait and see position within the ministry and really didn't um, argue to keep that that control within their hands. Plus, there was no wildlife in 19... There wasn't a lot of wildlife, so there wasn't a lot to lose. Reminds me a little bit of, of why... Uh States that don't have much manufacturing don't tend to be very protectionist. There's not that much to protect. So it's not like a big principle statement here. You're saying that, well, they're kind of down to their last effort anyway. Yeah, there wasn't that. It wasn't, despite the fact that the Zimbabwe experiment was going on, the people in the ministry in Namibia in 1990 thought, well, so we give the we give control of this to the local people. It's not worth anything anyway. So, and if we buck it, it's going to be politically suicide for us to do so. So, why not go along with this? It wasn't until the late 1990s or now today that people recognize there's a huge amount of resources at stake on these communal properties, and you might see increasing government involvement now that there are more resources, more rents more to revenue. be ha- yeah. more revenue, more rents to be had. Um, and you had also asked what keeps local people, local elites, because this is a real concern, what keeps local elites from merely dominating the process. Um, there have been some conservancies where there probably has been a little bit of an excessive domination by some local families. But it seems to be the case that this annual general meeting process and having to explain to local people how are we using the benefits and having local people have to vote on the future course of action is creating a kind of, it's almost like a Tocquevillian experiment. It's its local governance structure and holding people accountable at a very local level for what for the actions that they're taking. So people do get voted out of office. Um, it seems to be the case that more and more women are taking control of these management committees because women are seen as being more careful with financial resources than men are. 
Um, so there's been a general movement away from giving control to younger, what, better educated male conservancy members and giving control to the women who may be, the older women who are married, who may be considered more stable and more careful stewards, not only of the wildlife, but of the benefits that are being generated at the conservancy level. Yeah, I just want to go on record. I didn't mean to suggest earlier that education was a necessary component for anything productive. Oh, yeah. may have, may have Given the wrong impression there. Um, so let's get to the lodges. Yes, how do the lodges, lodges. Um, what's going on there and uh, how are they being run? How do they get started? Um, there were some lodges in these areas in the past, uh, but the lodges were not required to pay benefits to local people. So now what happens there? Who was, who was running them before? They would be, uh, they would be um, lar- commercial, commercial hospitality industry folks okay. and there are a couple of big there are a couple of companies that run um, these these tourist lodges uh, many of them are, are upscale tourist lodges in Namibia uh, so what happens today and this is really a result of uh, efforts in one particular conservancy which is called Tora in Namibia uh, what happens is that if a company an outside company a safari company wants to create a tourist lodge on a conservancy property they must go and negotiate with the conservancy leadership they may also have to consult with outside folks like local traditional authorities or maybe a local land board but they have to go to the conservancy and say we'd like to build a lodge on your land and the conservancy will say today oh well well and great but here's what you're going to need to do you're going to need to have we're going to need to have contractual provisions clauses that require that you hire local people Whenever possible, you're going to be required to train our local people. Um, you're going to give us a, per- a particular percentage of your bed night levies, and that'll be our main source of income. And by the way, at the end of a 20- or 30-year period, this lodge will be ours. We will own it, not you. So it's really – it's not a short-term arrangement. It can be a 20- to 30-year arrangement, but it's an arrangement in which local people have a pretty significant stake in what's going to happen in terms of – understanding how to run a tourist lodge, and then at the end getting getting the ownership control over the lodge. Um, Wilderness Safari, which is based in South Africa, has really done, I think, an outstanding job of partnering with local communities to provide benefits to local community members, not just in terms of a revenue stream, but in terms of training local people to become managers, to become um, uh to fill a variety of functions at these lodges. And that creates employment for individuals, but that employment at the individual level has benefits that spread out through the whole family. So one person who has a job, a full-time job at a tourist lodge in Namibia can be supporting five to six family members. And so how many of these lodges, do you have any idea how many lodges have been created in the last five or ten years? Um in 2006, there were 10 tourist lodges. There, I should say there are 50 conservancies today. Uh, there are 10 tour- joint venture tourist lodges as of 2006. I'm not sure today. I know others were in the negotiating phase. Um, another wonderful NGO in Namibia called the Legal Assistance Center helps local communities create and, and um, uh finalize these contracts, IRDNC does a similar thing as well. So communities are getting some support from outside organizations to enter into this process. But that original um, contract with the Torah Conservancy has really become a kind of best practices standard within the country for what should be done when you enter into these these agreements. Well, you'd think it'd be better just to charge a big fee and let 
Hilton or someone who's really good at this, I don't know who the wild the company you mentioned from South Africa. Let them do what the, whatever's the thing that makes uh, the tourism revenue the highest, and whether that means using local people or importing people from South Africa or elsewhere, and then just giving a royalty to the local community for letting them use the use the conservancy. Is there any benefits going on here? It would seem that some of these contractual provisions would reduce the flow of revenue potentially. What's going on there maybe, again, on the ground that's making this work better than it otherwise would? That's a curious question. Um, in Tourist revenues in Namibia continue to really skyrocket, um, So, and especially tourist revenues on the conservancies themselves. So it doesn't seem, you know, this this may be a little bit of a Bastiat um concern it maybe we don't we can't see we can't see what it would be like otherwise but it doesn't seem that this is really limiting income on the conservancies so local people may not be the best people to be trained for the tourism jobs but by requiring the training you get some multiply something that maybe I shouldn't be calling multiplier effects but you get people who learn skills and then will leave the tourist lodge and go start local businesses. And so they'll develop a set of, they'll develop some human capital by working in the tourist lodges and then take that human capital, that augmented capital, go out into the local communities and open bakeries, open tire shops, do other sorts of things, open internet cafes. And they have the skills and abilities to do that now in ways that they didn't have before the tourist lodges were there. So you might almost think of it as a kind of corporate social responsibility angle for for wilderness safari well, but it's it does, required by yeah the, it's required required by the contract but it's it's it seems to be a good thing and i know that i've stayed at several of the lodges while doing some of the research um, and my impression was other lodgers loved the fact that there were local people at work in the lodge who they could talk to well it very well could be the case that the that contractual provisions unnecessary would occur anyway. It's just interesting that they they made it that way. Uh, but the bottom line is, there's been an, it seems undeniable there's been an enormous increase in revenue flowing from the people just looking at wildlife. You said there's forty million Namibian dollars, just under forty million Namibian dollars in two thousand and seven, flowing to conservancies from use of wildlife. So that. Would include hunting and tourism, but it sounds like tourism is the major Absolutely. part of that. Absolutely, the joint venture tourist lodges generate by far the largest amount of income that conservancies are getting. Trophy hunting second, so there's both consumptive use of wildlife, hunting for own use, inviting people to come in to do the trophy hunting, and non-consumptive use, which is just looking at it and snapping your fo- snapping your camera. And Presumably, there's an immense increase in the actual amount of wildlife. Oh, my gosh. It's incredible. I mean, if you were to th- – this is the – the wonderful thing about the Namibia story is that it's, as far as I can tell, the best example of marrying two important international development goals. How do you conserve natural scarce natural resources? How do you effectively um, create a policy to for rural economic development? This does both things, and it creates local governance structures, local governance institutions, like an extra benefit. You get these uh, more vibrant governance institutions. And it sounds like you get increased human capital, education, and skills yeah. that are allowing people to do other things if they get tired of being in the tourist lodge. 
Right. So, I mean, all around, it's just, it's a wonderful example of a not very complicated change to the legal environment that's having major ramifications, all for the positive, in rural areas in terms of wildlife numbers. Wildlife numbers are, 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 doubling, tripling in some populations in Namibia. Elephants, elephant numbers have doubled um, since uh, since the early 1980s. There are um, more than doubling in terms of different kinds of antelopes. Zebra numbers are up, giraffe numbers, ostrich numbers. Pretty much any number that you look at is up in Namibia, including predators. So not only do you have lots of springbok and oryx and kudu, now you have things like um, endangered desert lion who are coming back. You've got leopards in the country, and that creates a whole different set of problems, which is being dealt with. But the richness of the natural environment in Namibia now, it, it's really, it's amazing. And when I think about it, I think, would that our Fish and Wildlife Service could, could go take a look at what's happening in Namibia? Well, let's turn to that. What are some of the implications for uh, wildlife management in more developed countries. How do we do it here in America? Say that we could perhaps learn from what can we learn from the Namibians for American wildlife management. So I think most Americans, when they hear the story of what's happening in Namibia, think it is. It maybe it can work in a far off, distant place, but that could never happen in the United States because what are we talking about? We're talking about local communities managing, living with, bearing the costs of and reaping the benefits of having a valuable wild resource in their backyard, basically. Not a lot of us here in the United States are necessarily going to want a whole lot of wildlife in our backyard, but there are tremendous areas of of wild space in the United States. And I I think the lesson of Namibia is that local people can do a fine job if given the right incentives, if given the, the correct legal framework, they can do a tremendous job at protecting their resources, growing growing resources, improving the natural environment, while also at the same time, ben- if they can benefit themselves directly from well, those efforts. One of the things that strikes me as potentially different between developed nations and, and poorer nations is the following. Give me a reaction to it. Uh, the wildlife where I live in suburban Maryland, and you're in suburban Virginia, there's quite a bit of wildlife. We have a, a wonderful hawk population that I enjoy looking at. Uh, we have a deer population that in some parts of suburban Maryland, I assume in Virginia as well, is quite a nuisance. Um, it, people don't have gardens. They don't have any – there are no flowers in front of their house because the deer come and eat them. Uh, but there's not much that's wilder than a deer uh, on the ground. Uh, there's some in the air, the hawks and the vultures, but um, most of the interesting wildlife that has we have romance associated with, bear, wolf, mountain lion, they tend to thrive in places that we don't let people live in the United States. So it seems to me one of the differences is that in Namibia and other com- – it's interesting, there's competing now countries for the tourist dollar, I assume, South Africa, Kenya – uh, and Namibia, et cetera. So they're, they're in interesting competitions to protect those wildlife. Here in the United States, most of the interesting wildlife is in national parks where you can't, the people don't live. Where the people live, we've got rats with tails uh, called deer, or uh, way people, vermin, large vermin, as some people think of them. Um, how could we manage some of the more, um, wouldn't we need a different model of national parks and and the way we interact with wildlife? 
Yeah, I think you might. Um, and that's certainly a, a frightening proposition to lots of uh, conservationists or environmentalists in this country. Um, but And there are certainly wild areas where there wouldn't be much of a community, but there are still wild areas where there are small communities not far away. And the idea would be to think about ways in which local communities and areas where there is wildlife could be more involved directly in managing that wildlife. So Namibia has has it is viewed as such a strong example that over the course of the last several years, delegate seventy different delegations have gone to Namibia to learn how can we do it. And one of the delegations that has apparently gone there is from the plain, a delegation from the Plain States that's thinking about how could we create the ecosystem of the Great American Plains and could we do it through a community-based approach. Um, so in areas like that, maybe community-based natural resource management would actually provide a kind of economic alternative in areas where farming communities are dwindling or other kinds of employment opportunities are disappearing, um, although lots of yuppies are moving to those areas because they're pleasant to be in. Um, but for some areas, maybe it's the Great Plains areas, maybe it's not the wilderness mountains of Montana, but may- maybe Yeah, maybe it is. It is. I mean, I, I think the... Maybe I made a mistake in thinking that, you know, we think of, uh, let's talk for a minute about Yellowstone, which is our most um, iconic national park. Yellowstone, I was struck by your description of the Namibian government having a department of environment and tourism. We have an EPA, which thinks of itself as the steward of our air and our water, but our land is managed by a whole bunch of different organizations, mainly the Department of Interior, but also the Department of Agriculture, which is running some of our national forests. And um, we have a lot of romance about uh, Yellowstone. But for years, it was run, unfortunately, like a giant uh, Disney, a giant uh, amusement park. You know, we contrast private and public ownership. We think, well, you know, if Disney ran Yellowstone, they'd ruin it. Well, the Department of Interior ruined Yellowstone for a long time. The way they ruined it was they made sure there weren't any wolves because wolves were a little bit scary. And one of the advantages of getting rid of wolves is that you get a lot of elk, and elk are numerous, easy to see, give a tourist an impression that they've seen wildlife. But unfortunately, elk just eat the heck out of grass and create erosion. And Yellowstone was managed extremely badly when it was owned by us in the – national sense of, of a national park. Now, in recent years, it's gotten better. Um, the wolf population has been reintroduced and they've thrived. But what the Namibia example suggests to me is, well, let's turn the communities surrounding Yellowstone, which have a challenge because of that. There, there's a border, but it's a border that these animals don't always respect. So you have, you have grizzly and other – and wolves that, that are going to take down sheep and other – things that people are profiting from, but they don't have a way of profiting from the thriving of the of the grizzly and the wolves. Maybe there's a way in those inhabited areas outside of Yellowstone where this kind of model could have an impact. Yeah, I think that's right. And don't forget, we also have state-level national, state-level parks. Um, we have local parks where you would imagine that there would be more opportunity to get uh, local citizens involved, certainly at the state level, I would think that some of those state parks could be um, could benefit from having a, something like a community-based natural resource management model applied, although it tends to be the case that state parks are managed better than the national parks to begin with. 
I think one of the challenges to any of these models is both on the part of the average citizen and certainly on the part of environmental groups, there's an unease about the profit motive. And in the case of these lodges in Namibia, they, I think the average person probably doesn't have any cultural opposition to profit perhaps, but certainly when they, if you're near subsistence and you see an enormous amount of money coming into your community, you get pretty tolerant of it because your kids live beyond the age of, of three. So that, that's kind of easy. Here in the United States, I think there'd be a lot of tension uh, between letting people manage resources for profit as opposed to the, on paper, more idealistic and noble national park system. Uh, but I'm curious, in Namibia and elsewhere, what have been the environmentalist reaction to these community-based management systems? Are they in favor of it, against it? Um, it would be, I think there's a mixed reaction, and the mixed reaction is, it, it would come in the following kinds of way, would come in the following way. Um, Namibia has done such a good job with some populations, and elephant is maybe the key example, uh, that they would like to start culling some elephants and using the ivory for, and selling the ivory. Um, elephant populations are not threatened in Namibia, they are not threatened in South Africa, they are not threatened in Botswana. And so the very success of their conservation program puts um, a very central piece of the environmentalist uh, message for the last 10 years, the need to have constricted, restricted trade in an endangered species, it puts that um, kind of in the crosshairs, if you want to think about it that way. So the Namibians are constantly asking, why can't we sell? Why can't we sell our ivory? Why, if we've got, if our population has doubled, why can't we cull a few animals and use those revenues in order to help local people even more? Um, so I think that traditional conservationists who have a very command and control approach, in some ways a very elitist approach to conservation, which is that we, the smart people with PhDs in wildlife biology, need to be in control of these resources because we are the ones who understand all the complexities involved in protecting a particular biome. They're threatened by the idea of having local people take more charge. They don't like the fact, or they, they may be concerned by the fact that when populations rise, that puts at risk centerpieces of their <coughs> agenda, such as the CITES Treaty. Um, but you also, at the same time, can't deny what's happened in Namibia. I mean, it's it's absolutely a success story. Every population, in every animal population in that country, has has recovered. They've made substantial gains. Whether it's predators, whether it's prey, um, whether it's just the the grasslands themselves, the natural environment, things are getting better in Namibia as a result of adopting these policies. And you were able to see this firsthand. How many times have you been to Namibia? I've been to Namibia two times. I was there in 2006, which is a wonderful experience because it was called the Year of the Great Rain. Um, <laughs> and it was just beautiful. For anyone who's listening who wants to go to a gorgeous place, Namibia is just an amazingly breathtaking, beautiful place with not a lot of people. And then I was back in May and spent several weeks there trying to follow May up. Of, this is too, we're taping this in early September 2008. So in May of 2008, I went back and I wanted to talk with the people who had been involved in the early days in creating the CBNRM project and ask them, how did it happen? How did this ever get to be in this country? Because I thought it was kind of an interesting public choice puzzle. And uh, those folks are still around. Many of them are still around. Um, Gartho and Smith, who's who's a very gracious man, uh, and his partner, Margaret Jacobson, were really kind to me and spent several days with me talking about how they started IRDNC. 
Um, Brian Jones is there. Um, uh, Chris Brown, who runs the Namibian Nature Foundation, is there. But Nico Bessinger, who was the minister who really pushed through the legislation, had passed away. And do people, do the average people, um, the average citizens of Namibia have a good understanding of this transformation themselves? Is it uh, something they're proud of? Is it special to them? It is. They are proud of it, and it is special to them. And they tend to have, and they tend to have very positive um, feelings towards the CBNRM project. Uh, women especially feel very positive about it because N- Namibia, um, rural Namibia, has been a very traditional society where women did not have a lot of voice and a lot of responsibility. And women are occupying 30% of the management committee positions. Maybe it's 30, I think it's actually up to 37% of management committee positions now. Um, They're taking more responsibility. They're seen as real leaders in their communities in ways that they weren't before. And the benefits are real. They're tangible to people. Schools are being improved. Um, Communities are able. Namibia is a big country. Things are spread out. Things are happening like communities can buy an ambulance to take their, when someone's sick, to take the person in an ambulance instead of in a rickety um, car in a bus to a hospital that might be 100, 120 kilometers away, might be 200 kilometers away. So there are all sorts of tangible benefits that people now see as a result of this policy change. And they're proud also that people like me keep coming to the country to say, how did you do it? How does it work? What's really happening on the ground? Well, thanks for a fascinating introduction to a very complicated and uh, provocative subject. We'll put a bunch of links up to material related to this podcast, as we always do if you'd like to learn more. My guest today has been Carol Boudreau of Enterprise Africa, part of the Mercatus Center here at George Mason University. Carol, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thank you for having me, Russ. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday. <music>